Let's visit the 90s all over again. Put on those hammer pants. This is Dope Nostalgia. Welcome to another episode of Dope Nostalgia, and I'm Naomi. This week, we welcome prolific songwriter Martin Page to the show. You'd be surprised to know how many great, huge hits he wrote in the 80s and 90s. I didn't even know about a lot of them, but I knew about his song that was a hit on radio called In the House of Stone and Light, hence why I reached out to get him on the show, and he happily obliged. So here's a little bit of information on Martin Page, but first, Dope Nostalgia News. Hot off the presses? You gotta adjust those rabbit ears got that antenna pulled up? It's time for some dope nostalgia news. Do you remember Farmer's Daughter's Jake Lesky Willis when she was a guest on the show? Farmer's Daughter is a Canadian country act that was very successful here in the 90s and she has just become a published author. She's releasing her brand new book Woven which can now be pre-ordered. If you go to her Instagram is the easiest way to get the book. Jake Lesky Willis on Instagram. Uh, Click on her link in her bio and you can pre-order a copy. This book is about the journey of motherhood that she's embarked on and all the difficulties she had and the beautiful, beautiful outcome of that when she finally became a mother, telling stories in a way that everyone can understand. Um, I'm just reading some parts here from her um, post about it on her Instagram. You can pre-order the book and receive a signed copy and donate $2 to resolve the National Infertility Association when you do that. So go ahead to her link tree link on her bio on Instagram and pre-order yourself a copy. Color Me Bad, our stars on episode three of this podcast, are now celebrating the 30th anniversary of their album CMB, which features their hugest hits, including I Want to Sex You Up, All for Love, and I Adore Me More. They have just released their debut album again with the 30th anniversary expanded edition. You can get more information on that on Color Me Bad's Facebook or Instagram at Color Me Bad Music. This weekend is the great big New Kids on the Block concert at Fenway Park for you Boston folks. So we are, as our group uh, that I'm a part of here at Dope Nostalgia called NKOTB Block Action, where a bunch of new kids content creators got together and we've created a huge community where we throw these fantastic Zoom parties. We're about to do our second one and we finally announced the date. It will be on August 14th at 3 p.m. Eastern time. If you want to register, just email us at N-K-O-T-B-L-O-C-K-A-C-T-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also find those links in the information on our Instagram page. You can just register just to show up and come and have a good time and party with us. We're also asking for video and photo submissions from the concerts, either Maryland or Fenway Park. If you want to send them in to us, um, we may feature them during the middle of our event. So register once again at that email address and come party with us. Wikipedia Moments. Martin Page, who hails from Southampton, England, first gained recognition as a songwriter in the early 80s with top 40 hits for Kim Carnes and Earth, Wind & Fire, among others. With Bernie Taupin, whose usual partner was Elton John, plus Dennis Lambert and Peter Wolf, Page wrote We Built This City, a worldwide number one hit for Starship in 1985. 
Page and Topin returned to number one the following year with These Dreams, recorded by Heart. Teaming up with Peter Cox and Richard Drummy of the UK group Go West, Page wrote King of Wishful Thinking, featured in the movie Pretty Woman, which became a top 10 hit for Go West in 1990, and Faithful, another hit for Go West. With Robbie Robertson, Page penned the critically acclaimed Fallen Angel, featured in Robbie's first solo album. Page has also written for, produced, had his songs cut by, and or otherwise worked with such artists as The Commodores, Barbara Streisand, Tom Jones, Paul Young, Earth, Wind & Fire, Brian Ferry, Phil Collins, Josh Groban, Colin Bluntson, Robbie Williams, and Elaine Page, among many others. As a songwriter-recording artist, Page gained success in America for his own band, Q Feel, with the classic dance hit, Dancing in Heaven, which brought him to this country in the early 80s and later, Page's debut solo LP, In the House of Stone and Light, was released in 1994. In 1995, its title track became a substantial pop hit and the number one adult contemporary hit, breaking the record as the longest charting single in Billboard's AC chart history and garnering Billboard's 1995 Top Adult Contemporary Single of the Year Award. It earned one of ASCAP's Top 5 Most Played Awards for 1995, and again for 96 at ASCAP's Annual Pop Awards. In 2008, Page released his second solo album, In the Temple of the Muse, the first single from Page's independent label, Ironing Board Records, which quickly reached number one on CD Baby's top-selling album's pop rock chart and remained in the top five throughout the first year repeatedly returning to the number one position during the 36 months following its release. You can learn all about what Martin's up to if you visit his Facebook page, facebook.com slash martinpagemusic, or just check out martinpage.com and see his website. All right, folks, it's time to introduce our new friend, Martin Page, to the podcast. All right. So this is a podcast called Dope Nostalgia. We talk a lot with people who had huge hits in the 90s and what they're doing now. And we focus on both sides of your career. Um, now, when you first started out as a musician, what made you decide to go down that path? Um, it's a great question, actually, Naomi, because I was really at 16 years old, I was going to be a soccer player. So I, I got into music a little bit late. It was around sort of 17 or 18 years old. And um, I was signed to Southampton Football Club in, in England and I was like an apprentice and I thought that's what I was going to do. That's what I cared about. But as I sort of was at the club for a while, I was getting a chance to go to all the, all, all the clubs in London and hear Motown and hear the Beatles. And slowly um, I really fell in love with, um, with music. And around the age of about 17 or 18, I, I bought a bass guitar and that was it. As soon as I started playing the bass, I'm... I'm a big guy, so I'm like six foot uh, four. So the yeah. bass guitar felt, it just felt good. And I realized that I wasn't going to be like um, a superstar at football. And I thought, you know, it's it's quite strange because as a young boy, I even thought that uh, your football career could end around sort of 30 years old. But with a musician, music goes on forever. And uh, my family, my my parents used to buy records and uh, in our council uh, estate, we used to always have parties. And as soon as we played, put records on the hi-fi, uh, a magic appeared in the, in the room, you know, and I just, I just thought that music had this incredible um, invisible uh, power and I wanted to get nearer to it. And who were some of those musical heroes that influenced you making that decision? 
Well, it would have been, you know, it would have been the Beatles because the Beatles appeared on TV at that time. And I remember seeing Love Me Do on Top of the Pops and seeing the Beatles for the first time. And of course, that was a culture change. Mm -hmm. And of course, Motown was breaking big. So Marvin Gaye, The Supremes, um, uh, all the records that were coming from America, Otis Redding, music like that. And of course, I'm a bit of an obsessive character. So I bought every record you possibly could get. I still have those vinyl records upstairs in my in my closet. It was every weekend I'd say to my mum, give me seven and sixpence to go and buy a record. And that was seven shillings and sixpence to buy a single. And I used to study the charts and uh, I became obsessed because when you're holding that little vinyl record um, and uh, looking at the grooves and then you put it onto the turntable and you see, you hear this magic appearing. I actually did think it was a, a magical force. And I wanted, again, as I said to you, I wanted to get nearer and nearer to it over time. It's, it's interesting that you say how uh, you studied the charts. It was just like an obsession because that's kind of how I feel about this era. And that's why I made a show like this. Yes. Um, your song being one of those songs that I remember very fondly, so, like the, the big hit. And uh, according what to was the big, what was the big hit in the house of stone and light? <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> that was the big one that hit here in Canada at that time. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Yes. I remember. Um, I, and I got to, I got to tour in Canada and, and play some gigs and I, and I love Canada. Um, mm -hmm. I felt like I was going back to England uh, with the people there. They were just so friendly. And in fact, on the album in the house of stone and light, um, I had a famous uh, guitarist, Bill Dillon, from Canada, who played with Johnny Mitchell and Peter Gabriel. He, he, uh, I'd met him with Robbie Robertson. I did Robbie Robertson's album. And so yeah. this Canadian influx was coming around my music, and I've got fond memories of uh, going to Canada and uh, playing with Canadian musicians. That was one of the things I was going to touch on, is uh, working with Robbie Robertson in 91, doing the album Storyville. Um, did you come up here and work with him on that? No, actually, I did the I did both albums. I did his first solo album, mm -hmm. um, the, the the Robbie Robertson album before that, his first solo one, and um, I wrote the opening track with him, "Fallen Angel," and um, and then I wrote "House Half Acre" on that record, and then he called me in for Storyville, and we wrote. A, I started a song for him called uh, "Sign of the Rainbow," mm. but that was a very influential period for me, Naomi, because I'd been associated with um, pop hits. And yet uh, I wanted to really get nearer to um, album oriented music. And I wanted to just break through and play with musicians that are that weren't just pop oriented, because around that time I'd had the hits with Go West, uh, King Wishful Thinking and Faithful. Yeah. And and I was getting called for that a great deal. And it was all wonderful. But I just thought, you know, I grew up on Genesis and I grew up on progressive rock and Jethro Tull and and uh, the funk and Parliament and Slander Family Stone. I just felt like there's more to me. And I was very fortunate because I didn't really know too much about uh, Robbie Robertson in England when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I think the band had a hit called Rag Mama Rag. And I remember buying that record, but I didn't know really uh, the heritage of Robbie. So when I got to collaborate with him, and actually, I did a lot of the demos in this room for him, uh, my studio at home here, and uh, oh. we just hit it off. And I think it was because I didn't really know his heritage with uh, Bob Dylan and everything. So we we just bounced off of each other. And um, Fallen Angel, I, I still feel today that Fallen Angel, produced by Daniel and was one of the uh, best songs I've ever had recorded. It just feels that the emotion and the spirit of that record is really right. Huge producer, Daniel Lenoir. 
very well respected in this country and for all the work he's yeah. done as well. Um, yeah. If I were to go back a little bit, just to say when you moved to Los Angeles early in your career, according to the Wikipedia, how did you tell yourself, yes, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to the U.S. Um, well, you know, Wikipedia, um, I'm not sure if any of that's really true, but <laughs> I know, um, that's why I have yeah, to you know, I, I've looked at it a couple of times and I've thought I'm supposed to live with my seven cats and uh, and I don't. So it's like, you know, whatever that, uh, that they write. But oh, I yeah. came to America because my father um, worked for British Aerospace, Na uh, NASA. And so he, oh. as a kid, he was always coming across to America and I would take my holidays coming across to the States. And uh, when I was uh, when I was in America as a, as a young lad, uh, um, I fell in love with American music because my father was based down south, Beaufort, South Carolina, Charleston, and I would be here in Wilson Pickett, Parliament, Slander Family Stone, Brothers Johnson, and that's why I became a bass player. Mm. So. Um, in a way, you know, I just was in contact with America because my father was. And then um, when I eventually got back to England to make this uh, not a Wikipedia. Oh, well, this is the true Wikipedia. This is the real story. Yes. Um, I was still going to be a soccer player, but I'd been in America with my dad around 17 years old. And I thought, no, it's bass playing for me. I want to play the funk. I was into Stanley Clark, Jaco Pastorius. I just wanted to be a musician. And so um, I joined a few bands in England, one in Bristol, one in Oxford. And then I eventually got a record deal in England, mm. uh, in London. Uh, and uh, Jive Records signed myself and my partner in the band, Brian Fairwell, they're a Scotsman. And we made a record in the 80s called Dancing in Heaven. And that became a big club record in Los Angeles. And so I just said to Brian, we've got to go to Los Angeles. We've got to just go pack up everything and get to Los Angeles and make a go of it. Well, the, uh, I'm making this a long story, but really when we got to L.A., uh, Dancing in Heaven had become quite a big hit and people wanted to work with us. So that's when we knew and I knew that I had to stay in Los Angeles because everybody wanted that new sound, which was, you know, the Thompson Twins, Tom Dolby, Ultravox. We were a band called Q-Phil. Oh. We, we used new technology. So in a lot of ways... Um, my breakthrough was in the 80s because American bands wanted to change their sound. And in fact, when I worked with Robbie Robertson in the, in the, on his albums, it was because I was thought of as the new kid in the block with a uh, new technology. And as um, soon as I got to L.A. and it all started to bubble, I thought, I'm going to stay here. This is my new home. And here I am. And it felt right. <laughs> and there you are still today. I still am here. I haven't moved. Sat in this room since the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. And I mean, yeah, you got to be a huge part of that transition in music at that time. I also read up that you worked with a legend such as Bernie Toppin. Yeah, I did a lot of work with Bernie. That was, again, a, magi a magical time. But uh, again, it was because Naomi, because it was the same vibe that they were trying in the 80s they were trying uh, the record companies wanted their artists and their writers to work with what was called the new wave mm. um my band was thought of as a, a new wave band and so bernie Taupin wasn't working with elton around that time and uh they said would you fancy working with bernie Taupin?" well again as a music fanatic i i grew up on uh, goodbye Elbit road and tumbleweed connection and so I just said, absolutely, I'd love to do it. I wonder if Bernie would want to do it. Mm. Bernie was interested because I was a new kind of uh, creature out of the swamp and he, was wanted, he wanted to try it out. And the first two songs we wrote were These Dreams 
and we built this city. And uh, Bernie just sent me the lyrics up front. And, um, you know, we after we had two number one songs, we thought something's happening here and uh, we continued to write. But that was a, a wonderful time because I think as an apprentice songwriter, I felt like I was working with um, the professionals in the sense that I was the young kid in town. Again, like a football career, when I was an apprentice, they used to put you into the team with the pros and you'd feel mm. like you were working around people that had the experience. So at that time, Bernie Taupin um, uh, and Robbie Robertson, and also I worked with Earth, Wind & Fire, which were one of my favourite bands of all time as a kid. So I worked with Maurice White. And between those three people, I felt like I was getting uh, the best education you could possibly get in a, in a very quick time as well. You know, I'm very lucky, Naomi, because I had the hits with these dreams and we built this city. And that, and again, that made me say, I'm staying. Yeah, here, another in this reason. Studio, and I'm not going to leave. So, uh, yeah, Ber Bernie became a really close friend. And, uh, you know, he's one of the greatest uh, lyricists of all time. So I was very fortunate that when I was writing music in L.A., they would people started to think that I was just the music man, and so they would just send me uh, lyricists and how David I worked with, and some of the, you know, some of the uh, John Bedes from the Carpenters, some of the greatest lyricists. So I was getting an education which was, you know, really unreal. And um, I think at that point, early eighties, I made a huge leap in understanding. Um, music better and became a professional at that time from working with these guys and then I think in the 90s which your show's about is when I really sort of sort of um was a, got it out but particularly as a solo artist as well yes no that's like fantastic that you got those incredible opportunities to work with those songwriters and you as a songwriter um do you prefer in your writing process to collaborate or do you like writing songs on your own as well Again, that's a great question because in the early years, um, collaboration was the way you broke through. Um, you had to work with many people. And through the 80s, I, I was working with, uh, my manager was telling me I was working possibly with three artists a day. And my studio here, where I put in a 24-track studio, and I, I, would, I became a bit of an engineer as well. So collaboration was everything. And so you looked at artists like Paul Young and like uh, West and you thought if you write with them, you're going to get on the album because the artists, they want to write with you. They want to get their songs on the album. Yeah. So it, was a, it, it not only was it a way of me learning, it was a way to get my songs out and being recorded. So um, collaboration was, was fantastic. But then at the end of the 80s, I was a little bit sick and tired of it. I thought I'm just... Uh, I'm not getting out what I need to do. And I've been given confidence by working with Robbie Robertson and Bernie and Earth, Wind and Fire. They were just saying, why don't you do your own thing? Because I used, I always did the demos and sang them myself and just thought I was singing to portray what it should be. But then some of the artists said, you've got a pretty good voice. You should make a record. And uh, I thought, yeah, well, yeah, no big deal. I'm just trying to portray the song. And then eventually my manager, Diane Poncher, who'd been with me for a long time, she said, it's about time you made your own record. Mm -hmm. And that's when I did In the House of Stone and Light. And over the years, I've enjoyed writing on my own slightly better than I have with other people because um, you just get set in your, in your ways. You just say, mm -hmm. I don't have to um, be a politician here. Mm -hmm. I, I believe in this. I'm going to do it. And I don't have to try and please three or four or five different people. So I enjoyed the collaboration in the early years, but now I like doing it 
on my own. Isn't that great? <laughs> In the House of Stone and Light was a fantastic album. The single takes off. What opportunities did that provide you at that time to market your own music, your own so solo album? Uh, uh, Unreal time, really. Unreal time. Because in the House of Stone and Light, I made it uh, as a record that I just wanted to artistically do my thing. Mm. I didn't think it would be a commercial record. I thought I may, I, maybe I'd get one chance to do something I really cared about. And um, so be it. You know, I wasn't a young kid. I was an older artist. So um, luckily around that period, there was AC Radio, which was adult contemporary. You know, it was... it. Mm. Uh, it was like the, the thoughtful music chart, supposedly. And um, In the House of Stone and Light was out for two years. When they first put it out, it absolutely flopped and did nothing at all. And nobody could really work out uh, what to do with that record. And it, but it was, in a way, I think I was fortunate because there were the bands that were happening at that time, like Sarah McLaughlin, mm. um, Bruce Hornsby. Um, you had a sense that uh, real music, real players was could break through. And so somebody at Mercury Records, where I was signed, said, you've got a big mouth. You should get out there and speak to as many DJs like you uh, on, on the road. And um, they put me out on a talking tour because I'd written hits that the radio stations knew. And over a period of about a year, the song moved from 132 in the charts up to 131 then 130, and then over <laughs> six months, it slowly climbed and climbed and climbed. It took a year, and then it reached wow. number one. And then it suddenly took off in the pop charts and went to, I think, I think, top uh, top 14. Yep. And so, so in a way, that the one uh, one person at the record company said, "I don't want to let this record fail." Um, Martin's got a story to tell, and I think I made a, I made friends with a lot of the DJs on the road, and they realised that the the song House of Stone and Light was a little bit unusual and it was a restoration and, and healing song. And then when, once they played it, they started to get such a feedback that they didn't expect to get. Um, so it was a very slow gestation, but when the record broke, I mean, I think it was for two years, it was the most played record on American radio, um, but it took two years. Yeah. So I was 122 years old when that oh. record hit number one. <laughs> so you can imagine how old I am now. Frightening, frightening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my oh, me. Come, my restoration. Wash my body clean. When you look back to the uh, 90s releases that you had, what are some of the album tracks, the deep cuts that you wish would have been singles that were near and dear to your heart? Well, you know, um, 
in those days, if you had one single, you as an I knew politically as an artist, it was a great thing if you could get two singles from a record company or three singles out. So on House of Stone and Love, we were able to get like three singles out of a out of a record company that was really failing at that time. I think uh, put on your red dress on the House of Stone and Light album. My manager said that should have been a single and we didn't put it out as a single. We put Keeper of the Flame out and I think Light in Your Heart. And now in uh, looking back, I think Put On Your Red Dress would have been a very strong song to have gone with. But, you know, it's um, it's difficult when you've got a record company that even though you've got a number one song, they aren't going to they're not going to take you up for the next uh, they were they were falling away so a lot of bands were dropped including myself after house of stone Light, which was a sign of mercury records not going to be around uh, past mm. my album uh, but that also was a beautiful thing because it also allowed me to form my own label and um, put out my own individual records on my own uh, independent label and of course i was an older artist then so it wasn't so much like fashion sense or you know, you're a boy band that has to dance in front of the, uh, the TV all the time. This was something to do with, I'd already had the hits. I'd had a little bit of um, uh, track record. And so I felt quite strong that I could make records the way I wanted to. You know, a lot, even though I wrote, I wrote a lot of hit songs for people and I grew up on pop music, my heart was really based in records like the Cocktoo Twins, like the Blue Nile from Scotland. Um, like progressive bands like uh, Genesis and like uh, Jethro Tull I, I believe, and Pink Floyd. I, I believed in artistry as much as um, hit songs. So in a way, I felt like if I'd stayed with Mercury Records and continued, maybe I wouldn't have had the freedom I had now, you know. But if it was in my book, I'd like to have put out all 10 songs from House of Stone and Light as singles. Yes. Every single one should have got in the top 10. No doubt about it. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever wondered where some of your favorite stories came from? 
Think recent icons are just fads that were created in Hollywood? What if I told you that most of the pop culture icons we know and love have a long history behind them, and some of them have strange beginnings and even stranger roads that they've traveled to become what we know now? If any of this sounds interesting to you, join me as I take you through the history, lore, and the works of actual scholars to show you more about the tropes, legends, and cultural icons you love in the Armchair Scholar's Guide podcast. Together, we will go over what makes these figures in our movies and books so special, reveal how old they actually are, and see how they've changed over the years. Along with every episode, there's also a ton of links and videos so that you too can find out more about the strange and unusual worlds and characters that have kept us up at night and kept us coming back for more. If you've always wanted to know more about the Joker, have a passion for Dracula, or just wanted to know who Santa really is, meet me at the Armchair Scholar's Guide podcast every second Saturday, and let curiosity be your guide. Soccer bopper, soccer bopper, you can sock all day and bop all night. Soccer bopper, soccer bopper, more fun than a pillow fight. Blow them up, put your hand inside, get ready to have the time of your life. Soccer bopper, soccer bopper, sock them once and bop them twice. Soccer bopper, soccer bopper, soccer boppers, more fun than the pillow fight. Fight big time toys. So what was one of your most memorable performances during that era? Um, playing Lions. in Germany, actually. I can, I, it's, a, it's actually quite easy to answer because when House of Stone and Light, um, the album broke, um, a top promoter in Germany who, who'd broken Phil Collins said, this record is so strong, we want you in Germany. And there was a real following for the music in Germany. So we, we got uh, my band toured. Germany for about two months and we played uh, Nuremberg on a, on a festival we played the Olympic Stadium mm. but on that album House of Stone and Light is a song called The Door it's the last song on the album and it's about um, the Jewish escape from a Treblinka concentration camp in the Second World War it's a very passionate and emotional song mm. I just um, read the story and just thought I want to write the story about how um, the prisoners decide, uh, chose the door to freedom instead of the door to the gas chamber. Mm -hmm. So it ended the album, and it was a B-side to uh, House of Stone and Light. And uh, when we were rehearsing that song, before we went to Germany, it was really fantastic. The whole band felt like we were elevated. It was so emotional. But I remember my keyboard player saying, do you want to play that song in Germany? Are you sure? You know, are you sure about playing that to the Germans? And I said... I think so. You know, I think it just feels the right thing to do. And I remember that when we played that song, we got standing ovations in Germany from the young audience of the, wow. the Germans. So um, I don't think we'll ever forget that. And we were we were playing that at Nuremberg uh, and it was raining and the, and uh, the audience just came out in the rain and just didn't, you know, they were hiding away because it was a storm on. And then when we finished that song, they all came out and uh, basically paid homage to it. They, they felt it. So I think what I remember the most uh, touring was playing that one song to um, Germans who were sympathetic to the story we were telling, which is a pretty amazing thing. Really. 
Just the fact that um, that story got to be told and you made the connection with that audience, you know, with that history, that's incredible. My, my keyboard player was like, oh my God, I don't know if we're going to get out of here alive. And at the end he was like, they get it, they get it. So it was a good, that's it was a good, good moment. Yeah, it was a good moment. In 2019, you made your own podcast from what I understand. So you <laughs> are a fellow, a fellow podcaster, Radio Owls yes. Well, I'm not as professional as you, my dear. Oh. <laughs> is it Radio Owls Nest? That's why I've got the big glasses. It's Radio Owls Nest. Great big owls. It's exciting <laughs> to chat with someone else who's involved in this medium. So <laughs> only for a short time. Are you not doing it anymore? <laughs> oh no, no. I, I mean, I've only been. I, I started, I think, uh, last year. So um, I thought I was going to do one show, and I'm, I'm up to 21 now, which to me is like uh, a lot. And but it's been fun. It's been great fun. Great fun. Good. We can find you on all the major platforms. It seems that way. I mean, uh, I've got a great uh, support system, uh, a lady called Vanessa Levitt, um, who was a, a fan of mine who watched my first live gig in Washington. And she uh, helped me put this up on iTunes and spread it out. It was really a whim. I just thought I've got all these demos and all these songs that I've written all through my career that are hidden away. And uh I was cleaning out my house and found all the cassettes, all the dats and all these people I'd written with. And I just thought that would be really fun to let people hear how these songs were written. Some mm. of the hits, some of the um, some of the demos that never get out, you know, some of the work I did with Go West that never that people didn't hear. And it was and I got a, a really positive response, particularly from songwriters, because really it's a songwriters podcast. And it was good to make people aware that. Um, there's a lot of fear in writing songs. It's not easy. You make mistakes. You write terrible songs. You write a good one. You know, you, uh, you're never sure what you've got. And so in a way, I felt it was good for me as well because I was playing some crap to people. I was going like, this was what I thought was good in 1922. It's awful. So uh, you can all, you know, and, and so it was a, a way of saying to songwriters, um, you never stop doing it. And the more you do it, you're going to strike gold down the line, you know? So it was, it was a, it's been a fun podcast. A lot of humor as well, as you can tell. We were just joking about quite a bit. It's important to write the songs that aren't so good because that's where the growth <laughs> comes from, right? Like, Why did you say you that might, to me? You why might, why well, me? Not you, not you. Me. Uh, me. me. I've, I've done oh, it. Are you a songwriter? 
Yeah, I am too. Oh, so, okay, okay. But but that's why it's something really interesting that I want to get involved in listening to your show and learning about the the origins of your songwriting experience because it's incredible. And I have to say, you have some of the most epic album titles. <laughs> They're just incredible. When you say progressive rock, I I've can only totally just see that. Begun. I've only, that's, that's a carpenter song, isn't it? Just, it's no, true. It, 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 is. it is true. It is true. I've made light of that because my... I'm, I, I read a lot, so I get very stimulated by titles. And so um, I recently, uh, which we haven't put out yet, I've just done a, a whole show on um, the album in the Temple of the Muse, which is my second mm. album after mm. House of Sound and Light. And somebody had said, why don't you do a uh, breakdown of that? Because I've done a three-part series of how In the House of Sound and Light was, uh, was written, recorded, and released. Um, and then when I, when I was doing this podcast, I thought... In the Temple of the Muse. Well, my first album was In the House of Stone and Light. I have this thing about building and architecture. There's something going on here. And so um, then the next album, I think I think I got a bit smaller. I think te A Temper of Peace. Then The Slender Sadness, The Love Songs. Ho uh, then there was another big one. Um, my God. Um, Hotel of the Two Worlds. I was going into mythology. So it's oh, yeah. very ever so unusual for me because my last album is called Fugitive Pieces. Just mm -hmm. two words. So I thought, what's gone wrong here? Um, but uh, yeah, I'm a great fan of epic titles. And in fact, I've got an instrumental record coming out. I've got to read this. Yes, in um, October yes. or November called The Occupation of Hope. Another grand title. The Occupation of Hope sounds very timely. I think it does, yes. Especially well, all my titles days. are timely, if you wouldn't think about it. Yeah. Well, no, but The Occupation of Hope is coming out in October and November. And then I've got my a new album coming out, which I'm just finishing to mix after five years of work with the players that played on in House of Stone and Light, including Bill Dillon from Canada, including mm. Russ, uh, Russell um, from uh, the band, Jan Arden's band. We oh, had a... Wow. Yeah, it's been a really, really, really a great uh, project where the, all the players that were involved in that album have come, come, came around me about two years ago. Jack Hughes as well from Wang Chung. Mm. And um, I was trying to get Jimmy Copley on drums to play again. Unfortunately, he passed. But so Trevor Thornton, my drummer from Qfield, he played on the record. And this album is called another large title, The First and Last Freedom. Ah. Now, don't steal that. I know no. you're a song. Don't you dare feel that. <laughs> no plagiarism on the, uh, this. No. <laughs> I think Russell Broom. Russell Broom, the Canadian guitarist, Russell Broom from Jan Arden's band. He's uh, played on that record. And, Jan uh, Arden's right from here in my own province. So there you go. So uh, I can't get away from you, Canadians. Mm -mm. You're everywhere. We're here. We're here. We're around. Fugitive Pieces came out in April. And uh, were you recording during the pandemic? during that time is that like obviously you've already had your home studio set up but was it yeah. more creative of a time for you um to tell you the truth um everybody sort of got worried like what are we going to do through this period but i'm a bit of a hermit uh mm. i've always been locked in these rooms writing so to me it wasn't it was a terrible situation but to me it didn't really change for me it was just like i think what it 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 did for me, Naomi, was made me concentrate on this record I just talked about, The First and Last Freedom, where I'd had all the musicians that played on House of Stone and Light play live with me again. And that was a big deal. Um, 
I, I had a lot to work on with that album. So I thought I'm going to mix that record. And I was a little bit scared of that record because I had horns on it. I had live drums. I had, again, Bill Dillon, who recorded in Canada. We had Russell Broom. We had, um, as I said, a horn section. We had uh, Ray Parker, because I, I worked on Ghostbusters, and Ray Parker played guitar on two tracks. So here wow. I was recording all these art, all these players, and it was the, tr the tracks were just getting bigger and bigger. And I thought, my God, you know, how am I going to finish this? this is, it's wonderful to be with all the players. Neil Taylor from Tears for Fears played mm. guitar as well. Again, he was one guy who played with House of Stone and Light. And I felt this daunting pressure to finish this record really, really well. Um, and the Blue Nile, the Scottish band, um, Joseph Paul Moore, the keyboard player who played on House of Stone and Light, he played on the record, sending me stuff from Glasgow. So I felt this pressure, like these songs are pretty fantastic, but I've got to mix them. Mm. And so I used the pandemic as an excuse to work for a whole year mixing the record, which I'm just just finished uh, really about a, a month ago. And uh, I think it's the best work I've done since House of Stone and Light, as my manager does, because I've just seen it as a very, very precious project because the songs were written really through a, a, at a point when I wanted Jimmy Copley, my drummer, who was a Tears for Fears drummer who played on House of Stone and Light. I wanted to bring him over to play with me one more time. Well, he unfortunately passed away from leukemia and he wanted to play on the record. And we kept on, I was sending him tracks in the hospital and his girlfriend was saying, these tracks, he's going to get better. He's going to learn the tracks. Well, he never quite made it. And uh, he talked to me about it uh, and he loved the tracks. And then Jack Hughes, the Wang Chung uh, lead singer and guitarist his wife passed from cancer and he was in town so i said come across and just play with me play some music and so this album grew out of me trying to get close to my deepest friends as they went through grief mm. and every time a player played on these songs which were appearing they would say to me this is the this is so much this is the best stuff this this the songs were just so special and um i felt a lot of um pressure to do everything right so i I mixed the album over two years um, and um, I couldn't be happier about it. Um, it's so special that I don't want to put it out until next year so that I can uh, put it out the right way. Um, although it's just been finished, I just feel like I want it to be put out um, absolutely in the perfect way. CDs, uh, material releases, vinyl, uh, touring, whatever. It's just too good. Um, but I'm prolific. so. Um, it's easy for me to say the occupation of hope, my instrumental record's going to come just before that. But, you know, talking about House of Stone and Light and the 90s, mm. this new record, which uh, won't come out till next year because I want to release it properly, the first and last freedom, is really all the players from the House of Stone and Light period. And I feel that possibly I was writing that album in a very spontaneous emotional place i mean i'm an older artist but i think um i hit i hit a bit of a, a lodestone there i hit a gold run with mm. some, some of these songs because i think i was writing for my friends uh with jimmy copley the drummer i wanted to his, and his girlfriend said send him some stuff to to get him out of hospital you know and so yeah. the songs i was writing were not thought about does everybody like this it was like it just has to move my the players I respect. It has to move. Ah. I know I know how these players react. And in fact, there are two tracks on the album, one called Little Bird 
and one called Simplicity, which I knew would be perfect for Ray Parker. And I hadn't seen him since the Ghostbusters days. Mm-hmm. And so I went to his house and played him these tracks and he just played some some guitar that, my God, it was like what he played with Stevie Wonder and Boss Gags. It was so funky. And so I think I think this album, you know, when you get to my age, you think, how many more are you going to do like this? Where it's, you know, like, like making a record um, with all the ingredients in, you know, because mm-hmm. as a solo artist, you can sit at home and do everything yourself with your Pro Tools and your, um, all your samples. But this was a bigger project. I think the hardest thing for me was to think, how do you present this record in mixing? And I, and I thought, well, my era was Tears for Fears, you know, songs on the big chair, Simple Minds, uh, Alive and Kicking. I want to make a record sonically that sounds musically mm. as good as the 90s were. That's interesting, I'm on your show talking about it because mm. it wasn't over-compressed. It was made to, sound, made to resonate. And so I, as soon as I knew that, that I'm mixing an album which would be songs from the big chair, yeah, Simple Minds, The Blue Now. Um, I knew that I knew I could get my, my teeth around this and really believe in it. So I'm talking about something I'm not going to put out till next year, but it's f- funny oh, that it's, on, like, that it's a, a 90s show. And that's really how I, how I perceived. That's to me, sonically, the 90s, sonically, the 90s, the records mm-hmm. were engineered uh, perfectly. And the drums and the, the way that they didn't over compress and flatten out and brick wall, you had a sense of putting your hands into the music. And I wanted to re- uh, to create that. More text. Uh, one of the hardest yeah. things today, I've got to say, no, but one of the hardest things today, and I'm thinking musicians, you brick wall everything when you uh, when you mix a song, so you compress it so hard. Mm-hmm. And so I had to pull myself right back and go, no, it's not about volume, it's about depth, mm-hmm. and it's about uh, resonance, and that you can uh, things every every instrument you can hear and feel, um, and I think that's a thing that we've lost in the in the uh, in this era. Because more of texture, Pro Tools. more layers of texture. Absolutely, absolutely. Sound. Yeah. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, do you ever still have the opportunity to record anything in analog? Well, okay. actually, um, if you look, look over my shoulder, you can see the 24 track there. There's a, yeah. a Studio 24 track. Uh, and I have all analog um, equipment in this room because this is this was where I did House of Stone and Light in here. Mm. next to this room is a digital room so um everything i sing through everything that hits digital because we have to use pro tools um is going through analog equipment we're using all the vintage equipment all the all the neumann mics mm-hmm. all the compressors from the from the era of uh, neve and uh, and ssl so everything mm. is going uh, massenburg all the old stuff Every, although my records come out on digital everything that's processed is analog yeah I'm glad that you still have all of the equipment and that you're putting it to good use. I think that's incredible. Oh, yeah. There's nothing, there is no better sound than that uh, going through the fur and the deepness and the fog of analog. Yeah. Mm. Well, you are an incredible songwriter. You're very inspirational to me. Could you say that again a bit louder? I'm just trying to stroke okay. your ego. <laughs> Yourself, yeah. No, but I, that, I'm very grateful to have spent this oh, time thank with you. You, you meant a lot to me. And I appreciate that. And good luck with your own songwriting. Thank you so much.
Hey kids, put down that Tamagotchi and listen for a second. You know, you can follow us on Twitter at NostalgiaDope, Instagram at Dope underscore Nostalgia. Visit our website at www.dopenostalgia.com or pick up the phone and call us at 780-851-8785. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work.